The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Actually, been a while since I've had the opportunity to share the word with you, and I'm I'm really looking forward to it this morning. Now, you heard during the communion there, we talked about how you go out of 2018 is very important. How you go out of 2018 is how you go into 2019. I want to talk about uh, uh, something very powerful and specific that I think we need as we move into 2019. I want to give you a few things that we'll find. Now, you know that we encourage note taking. If you are a note taker, that's great. If you're not, I want to encourage you to grab some paper. Maybe you can love thy neighbor by, you know, throwing them a sharp elbow and mugging them from a, of a sheet of paper or a pen or something. But jot some things down because God's speaking to us when we come together. And it's really, really important that we remember that it's not just for, you know, 30 or 40 minutes on Sunday morning. But God's looking to bring his word into our lives, to invade our lives with his word for the purpose of our lives being affected in a very kingdom way. And when we revisit his word in our own time, wonderful and powerful things can happen. So if you are taking notes, I want to give you a few things to look forward to. These are a few things you can jot down because we'll find them as we move through the service. One of the things that we're going to find as we get into the word is God's solution to our problem. God's solution to our problem. We've got a problem and God has given us a solution. We're going to find out what that is. And I really think that this is a timely word as we go out of 2018 and as we move into 2019, as we move into the new year, when we see what our problem is and when we see what God's solution is, it can have an effect on how we live our lives. Another thing we're going to find is what Jesus gives us. There's something that Jesus gives us, and I want to find out what that is. I'd like for you to know what that is so that we together can celebrate what Jesus gives us. And then a third thing we're going to find is the perfect New Year's resolution. How many of you make New Year's resolutions? I mean, hands aren't exactly flying up. A few are going up. They're not really clear in the shoulder, though. It's almost like we're embarrassed by that, right? Well, oftentimes that can be something that we're not really excited about because they're kind of hard to keep. But there's a New Year's resolution, and that's kind of a kitsch way to put it. There's a New Year's resolution that I think we should all make as we move into this new year. And I think it can have a profound effect on our lives. So I told you we're going to find out God's solution to our problem. I want to start there. If you have your Bibles, I want to ask you to turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be looking at chapter 30. The book of Isaiah, chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, you immediately are confronted with a problem, a problem that could be owned by you or by me. This could be a problem that we have in our lives. Isaiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 1, it reads like this, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not my plan, who make friendships, but not by my spirit. In order to add sin upon sin, and I have a feeling that you could imply upon sin, upon sin, upon sin. These two things are multiplying sins in the lives of people. Making plans that aren't God's plans. Creating relationships or friendships or some of your Bibles may say alliances. Some of those things that are not called by God's Spirit can be destructive in our lives. Now, you don't have to turn too far from popular culture to see that this is a major issue 
Our society with social media and other avenues of communication really suffers some of the things that tend to add sin upon sin upon sin upon sin. Now, I'm not here to preach against those things. I want to talk about God's solution. Because I don't think this is about making a pinata out of Facebook. I think this is about taking the scripture and celebrating what God's done on our behalf to protect us from making plans that aren't his plans or making alliances that aren't with his spirit. He's given us the solution to this problem and all we need to do is read further down in Isaiah chapter 30. Let's go down to verse 18 and read verses 18 through 21. Remember the problem is listed in verse 1. Woe to those rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute plans but not my plans, who make alliances but not of my spirit. They add sin upon sin. Now verse 18, we're starting to see the solution. God's turning things around. It should excite us. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. I want you just to stop for a second and consider that. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. I mean, to come into an awareness of what that means is to completely alter my prayer life. Where for years and years it began with, dear God, as in like, I hope you're listening. Maybe you'll catch this. The reality is he longs to be gracious to me. There's an excitement and a celebration of him revealing goodness that he holds, much like knowing someone who's really, really good at giving gifts. They enjoy it. God enjoys blessing us. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are those who long for him. Now verse 19, O people of Zion, inhabitant, an inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. And when he hears it, he will answer you. Now, I want you to pay very close attention to these next two passages. Although the Lord has given you adversity and oppression, He, your teacher, will no longer hide Himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word from behind saying, This is the way, walk in it, whenever you turn to the right or to the left. Now, how awesome is that? I mean, we're coming out of the season, the season that we refer to as Christmas, where we celebrate the birth of our king, and we consider his name, that he would be called Wonderful Counselor. Now, God's given us a solution to this problem, this problem where we have a tendency to make plans that really aren't God's plans. We have a tendency to connect with people that's really not birthed out of the Spirit of God. But God is saying, listen, I'm going to reveal to you your teacher. He'll be with you. And you'll hear his voice. His voice will speak to you. And whenever you're at a point of decision, that's turning, right? To the right or to the left. That's a decision-making point. Oftentimes, decision-making points in my life are like, hey, where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? So that we drive around forever and ever, burning a quarter of a tank of gas before somebody finally speaks up. A decision-making point, though, is this, this fork in the road, this turn right or this turn left. And God is saying, listen, a problem has been you choose to turn and you turn in the wrong direction. But I've got a solution to that problem. I'm going to let you see your teacher. 
He's no longer going to be hidden, and he'll be there. So in every point of decision, every fork in the road, every crossroads you come to, you can hear his voice behind you telling you which way to turn. Sign me up for that. That's God's solution to our problem, to protect us from making plans that aren't his, joining alliances that aren't birthed out of his spirit. So who is our teacher is the question. I mean, I want to know more about this. If this is God's solution to my problem, I really want to find out more. I want to know the solution. I want to obtain the solution. I want to live out this solution. And I think as a body of believers, we need this. Or else we remain prone to making bad choices. To coming to crossroads and choosing the wrong direction. Joining ourselves with those that God hasn't called us to join ourselves with. Making plans that really aren't God's plans. I want to give you a passage of scripture for your notes. Coming from the Gospel of John, chapter 14. I love the Gospel of John for many reasons. But chapters 14, chapter 16, these are two chapters where Jesus reveals a whole lot to us about the Holy Ghost. I want to turn to John chapter 14, and I want us to pay special attention to a single passage, verse 26. If you're taking it down for your notes, John 14, 26. If you're opening up in your scripture, John chapter 14, verse 26. It reads like this. Jesus identifies the Holy Ghost as our helper. I mean, what does a helper do but help you when you have a problem, right? I mean, you really don't need help unless you have a problem. So remember, God's providing solution to our problem, our problem that we make bad choices. And Jesus is revealing the identity of the Holy Spirit by calling him the helper, and then he reveals how he's going to help us. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I've said to you. He will teach you. He will teach me. I want to ask you to say that. He will teach me. me. Yes, isn't this an awesome identity that the Holy Spirit fulfills? He will teach me. Now remember, God's solution to our problem involved the revealing of a teacher. I mean, to paraphrase it, he's saying, I love you so much, but you make terrible choices. And listen, I long to help you. I am am revealing perfect solutions to your problem. And here it is. I'm going to let you see your teacher. I'm going to reveal your teacher to you. He'll no longer be hidden. You'll hear his voice. And when you come to that point of decision, when you come to that crossroads, you'll have his counsel. He'll tell you which way to go. What a wonderful thing that God's done on our behalf to bring perfect solution to an issue that we all face. So then I want to ask this. I want to ask, well, what is it that I'm being taught? I mean, I know that I need a teacher, and I think that God is is going to specifically say teacher for a reason. He's kind of intentional about his words. I don't think Jesus ever preached a message and walked off and thought, you know, that kind of worked out. That one thing I said that was like, that was like really smart. Somebody, I hope somebody wrote that down. But he's intentional. I mean, he he calls him a teacher. His solution involves a teacher, not just a map, not just some sort of, of navigation, but a teacher, meaning that it's more than just having direction. It's about being transformed. 
It's about coming to a place where you no longer need to be told which way to go, but you know which way to go. I feel that I have this call in my family as I'm raising my sons. I mean, I only have a few years with them to teach them, and then they're going to be making decisions on their own. And so at this time, I'm their teacher. I'm trying to, 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 to tell them which way to go, but at the same time, I'm trying to impact the way they think so that when they encounter this and I'm not around, they'll be able to make the right decision. But praise God, the Holy Spirit is with us always to protect us from error when faced with decisions and choices. But more than a system of navigation, he's here to affect our lives by imparting God's wisdom. So I want to know what it is that he's teaching. I told you earlier we were going to find out a few things. The second thing that I mentioned, we're going to find out what Jesus gives us. I'd like to find that out right now. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. What Jesus gives us. Now as we read this together, I want to ask you to do everything in your power. To let this have an effect on you. I mean, the word says that if God speaks today, soften your hearts. Don't harden your hearts. I'm not really sure how you can do that. But if you can do it, I'm asking you to do it. Because I really believe what's revealed here is important for us. It's important for our marriages. It's important for our families. It's important for our calling. It's important for the role that God's called us to walk in as the body of Christ together. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. It says, as many as received him. Now, the him there is Jesus. As many as received Jesus, to them he gave. We're about to find out what he gave, but I want you to catch that. As many as received Jesus, he gives them something. I mean, if we were just to ask for a show of hands in this room, which I'm not, how many of you have received Jesus? Hands would go up. Now, as your hand would go up, you would be coming into agreement with something. Upon receiving Jesus, Jesus gave you something, whether you know it or not. As many as received him, to them Jesus gave the right to become children of God. Even those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. I want to reread just a short part of that because I want to make sure that we catch the point. As many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Right is the word that I want to look at there. It's an interesting word. Now, we're familiar with the word right as American citizens, especially as Texans, right? I mean, that's correct, isn't it? I mean, we we really celebrate our rights here. And we don't like our rights infringed upon. Some of your Bibles may have a different translation there. It might say power. That as many as received him, Jesus gave power to become children of God. But the word right is is really a correct translation in my opinion. It's exousia. It's not dunamis. Dunamis is power like the power of the Holy Ghost. Healing the lame would be dunamis. Like where we get our word dynamite. But this is more of a legal term. You have a right to be children of God because of what Jesus has given you. If you were to look up the word exousia, if you were to to pull from a concordance, you might find the following. These would be in there with others. The power of choice. 
Now, I hear that, and I think, yes, and I also think, uh-oh. I don't always make good choices. Here's another one that you would find. The power of authority. And I think, ooh, I like that. The power of judicial decisions or the authority to manage domestic affairs. The authority to manage your life, basically. When we read this, we're catching an understanding of what this word right means because it's important to us to understand that when we receive Jesus, he gives us something. He gives us the right to be children of God. That makes me pause. My question for myself, understanding what rights are, is am I exercising this right? And if I'm not, how do I exercise this right? Because oftentimes I've been in circles that simply assume that when I received Jesus, I became a child of God. But according to what John writes here, very specifically, when I received Jesus, he gave me the right to become a child of God. He did not seize my will upon my new birth. Old things pass away, new things come, and now we are spiritual robots. We're still in a world making choices and decisions every single day of our lives. And those choices and decisions reveal whether we're turning to the right or turning to the left. Jesus has given me the right to make the decisions of a child of God, to live my life as a child of God. I want to find out how I can do that, and I want us to turn to the Scripture to find out how to exercise our right to be a child of God. I'd like for you to write this down for your notes. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I want to look at verse 14. How do we exercise this right? Romans chapter 8, verse 14, it reads like this, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Now remember God's solution to our problem. He says, hey guys, there's a problem here. You're, you're constantly faced with decisions and you don't always make the right choices. But hey, I want to be gracious to you, so here's my solution. I'm going to reveal to you your teacher. And you'll hear his voice directing you when you're faced with decisions. When I can follow his direction, according to Romans chapter 8, verse 14, when I can be led by the Spirit of God, I am operating and functioning and celebrating my right as a son of God, a child of God. Being led isn't always easy. I mean, if you were to go into the Christian bookstore... And you were to go up to the attendant there, someone at the counter, and say, hello, excuse me, I would like to know where your section is on leadership. They would probably say, well, it's that whole wing that we added on over there. And you can find tens of thousands of books on leadership. But if you were to go and you were to say, hey, excuse me, uh, I would like to find your section on being led. Do you have a section on, on being led? People who have written awesome books, who have, who have studied the Word and gotten into the Word and had great revelation and have documented that revelation to share it with me on how to be led, they would probably say, I'm sorry, sir, we don't have any of those. 
We're so fixated on being leaders and in, in, in leadership that sometimes we forget that our lives are to be led. It's being led by the Spirit of God that identifies us as the sons of God, that lets us exercise our rights that Jesus has given us by His shed blood and His conquered grave. So as I'm going through this, I'm thinking, well, I want to know more about what it is to be led because I want to be led by you. When I come to crossroads, when I'm making choices and decisions, I'm not interested in being a leader. I'm interested in being led. I want to hear your voice from behind me telling me which way to go. So to find out how to be led, I want to turn to the Scripture again. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles or take down in your notes John chapter 10. I want to begin reading in verse 22 because what I see in verse 22 is amazing and interesting to me. I hope you find it the same. Something's going on, but I love it when the Scripture gives actual context, time, and place. Because oftentimes when we talk about Jesus and His ministry, the sermons that He preached and the miracles that He did, we simply talk about the sermon or talk about the miracle. And in having no context that he's actually a man who stood with his feet on the ground and walked in places that you could go buy a, a plane ticket and fly to and walk yourself today. When we have that context, it just helps bring a little reality to these things. They become less mystical. And that's why I want to start reading in verse 22. At the time of the Feast of Dedication, when this took place in Jerusalem, it was winter. I mean, we can relate to that. I mean, look up. We've got snowflakes hanging in here for crying out loud, right? This is thematic, right? It's cold outside. Can you picture Jesus? Like, hey, I need an extra robe today, guys. It's kind of chilly. I mean, it's, it just adds a little reality to it. It was winter. We don't really think about stuff like that, but it helps. Jesus was there for this occasion, and it was winter, and he was walking in the temple in the porch of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him, and they were saying to them, How long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And then Jesus gives them this answer. I, I, I love Jesus' answer. His answer is absolutely perfect. What I don't like is the translation, where commas get put. So we're going to adjust that. I want to read it like it's written, and then we're going to make an adjustment. Jesus answered and said, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. I want to stop there. You see, he says, I told you, comma, you do not believe, comma. Okay, let's pull that out and let's put you do not believe at the end of the sentence. I told you the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me and you do not believe. That's what he's saying. You don't believe because you are not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. He goes on to say incredible things here. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Did you hear that? They follow me. They know how to be led. They're not so busy trying to be leaders that they can't be led. My sheep will follow me, and I give eternal life to them. 
and they'll never perish, and not one of them will be snatched out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. And I guarantee you, upon those words, there was a solid hush that was immediately interrupted by a rage. This is the point when people began to cry for Jesus' head. He needs to die. They began to gather stones. This man equated himself with God. This is a massive point of the scripture. That Jesus would reveal such an incredible truth ought to get our attention. And in this incredible truth, we see something that's absolutely necessary for us to exercise our rights to be children of God. Being led by Jesus. Following after him. You notice when people were coming and they were saying, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? Tell us. Are you the Christ? Are you the anointed one? Are you the Messiah? Tell us. When Jesus responds to them, he speaks to them about the miracles that he performed. And he says, you don't believe. Not that you don't believe that the miracle happened but you don't believe why it happened. He goes on to reveal you're not my sheep because you don't believe. So what that tells me is in order for me to follow Jesus, in order for me to be one of his sheep, in order for him to be my shepherd, I'm going to need to believe. Now this is where we meet another brick wall, a a point of confrontation. Because oftentimes the understanding of what it means to believe can easily become corrupted. We we immediately turn to the idea of believing in. Like believing that something exists. Jesus is standing there in front of people. They've seen the miracles. They know they exist. There's not a problem believing that Jesus Christ is real or believing that the miracles are real. These people have seen them. They're standing there. But Jesus is still saying, you've seen these things and you don't believe. So it's not a matter of willing oneself to come to the point where you think something exists. But when you look up the word believe, when you turn to the scripture, when you look in the concordance in the original language, this will be the definition you'll find. To put trust in. To put trust in. I mean, to believe in Jesus is not to just acknowledge that He exists. Because throughout the Scripture, His enemies acknowledge that He exists. Satan acknowledges that He exists. The demons acknowledge that He exists. But then there are those who put their trust in Him. And upon putting their trust in Him, see the results of heaven in their lives, the results of holiness in their lives, the results of God's goodness, His mercy, His grace in their lives. In order for me to exercise my right as a child of God, I need to follow Jesus. And in order for me to follow Jesus, I don't simply need to acknowledge that He exists. I need to come to the place where I'm willing to trust Him. I can trust Him with every aspect of my living. I want to follow Him in my marriage by trusting Him, being willing to change, to not be stubborn. I want to follow Him in raising my sons to be willing to look at His Word and apply His direction and His counsel 
above my own. I want to acknowledge him in every aspect of my living. Let him be the leader and I'll follow. And what it is that we're trusting in when we put our trust in Jesus is that he'll lead us in the right way. That he won't lead us astray. That he won't lead us to loneliness. That he won't lead us to poverty. That he won't lead us to death and destruction. But that he'll lead us to abundance and prosperity and life and fellowship. That he'll lead us in the way we should go. We have to trust that he'll lead us. And when we can trust that he'll lead us in the way we should go, we can follow him. Be his sheep. Hear his voice. Be known by him. And receive the benefits that followed. I'll give them eternal life. They'll never perish and no one shall ever snatch them out of my hand. When we can function and operate like this, when we can be followers of Jesus Christ, we can exercise the right that he gave us to be children of God. So I've constructed something in this for the purpose of us being edified. Edified is a word used in the scripture meaning like being built up to get better. How many of you want to get better? I want to get better. So I've put something together using the scripture here this morning. And it's not meant to shame anyone. In fact, it's meant, if it does bring about a conviction, that's meant to be responded to for the purpose of being built up and edified. But I want to tell you what it is. It's, It's a bit of a spiritual paternity test. Am I functioning in my rights as a child of God? But I want to give you a passage of Scripture, and this is actually first on the list of our spiritual paternity test. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. 1 John chapter 3, verse 10. We can take these passages of Scripture, we can measure them against our lives to identify, are we exercising our rights to be children of God? Are we following Jesus? Or are we following ourselves? 1 John chapter 3, verse 10, it reads like this. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. I kind of like passages that are really straightforward like that. Don't you? So you have two groups here. The children of God and the children of the devil. And by this, they're obviously separated. They're obviously distinct from one another. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. If we're practicing sin in our lives, we're not following Jesus. We're not exercising our rights to be children of God. Rather, we're being led by ourselves, our own lusts, being led astray. And I'm glad that it uses the word practicing. It doesn't say if you stumble. Or if you sin, but practice, meaning you have have made it a part of your lifestyle. It has been embraced and accepted. What you once thought was wrong or knew was wrong, you thought, well, that's not so bad anymore. Or maybe you've just decided, you know, I just don't like that part of Scripture, so I'm going to say this is okay, no matter what God says. That would be practicing what is unrighteous. And when we practice what is unrighteous, we are not operating in that right to be children of God. And then we see this. We see the one who doesn't love his brother. I can tell you there's absolutely zero room for racism in the kingdom of God. None whatsoever. And any stronghold of racism in anyone's life or anyone's family needs to be renounced, cast out, 
It is a bondage and an affliction that will keep you from functioning and operating within your rights as a child of God. The scripture has very specific and powerful things concerning racism. Being able to love one's brother. Here's another one of these spiritual paternity tests. You can write it down. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Matthew chapter 5 verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Am I making peace? Am I making peace or am I stirring up strife? If I'm making peace, then I'm operating, following Jesus, celebrating my rights as a child of God. If I am stirring up strife, then I'm being led by something other than Christ. And I'm rejecting my right to be a child of God. Matthew chapter 5, verses 44 and 45 are connected with what we just read. I want you to hear these words. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, can you say so that? Oh, we have cause and effect here. Do this in order to get this result. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So we have to examine our lives. Do we love our enemies? Even if we can come to the place where we say it, do we truly love our enemies? Would we be willing to lay our lives down for them the way Jesus laid his life down for us while we were enemies with him? Pray for your enemies. Now, I've, I've kind of legalistically botched this one a lot. Right? It doesn't just mean include your enemies in your prayer life. Like, Father, strike down those dirt bags because they're terrible. They called me names. They've slandered me. I hate them. Right? That's not what it means. Pray for. For. Like God is for you, not against you. Pray for them, not against them. I remember one time, and I've said this before, but I, I just think it's hilarious. I'd never been slandered worse in my life. The gossip, and by the way, malicious gossip is in the scripture a number of times. A couple of times the same word is translated Satan. I mean, that's how bad malicious gossip is. This was one of the worst times of my life. People were saying terrible things that weren't true. And I remember praying for my enemy. I was deep in prayer. Father, dry up the tongue of the gossip. In Jesus' name. My tongue swelled up. And I couldn't talk for two days. For two days I couldn't talk. I don't know what happened. My tongue just swelled, swelled up so big I couldn't move it. So let me just tell you, when you pray for your enemies, pray for your enemies. Don't pray about your enemies, but pray for your enemies. If we find our ourselves in a place where we can love our enemies and pray for our enemies, then we're being led by Jesus. And we're exercising our right to be sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. If we can't, then we're being led by something else. Our own desire for vengeance. Our own desire for affirmation. Our own reputation being saved and salvaged. And it'll only lead to destruction. I want to give you another one of these spiritual paternity tests here. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 14 and 15. Philippians chapter 2. 
Now, before I read this, I'd like to repent. Okay? So, we got that out of the way. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. So that, can you say so that? Yeah, so that. Remember, cause and effect. Do all things without grumbling or complaining so that you will prove yourself to be blameless, innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Can we live our lives, function and operate without complaint? I mean, oftentimes my wife is very graciously, you'll never meet a more gracious woman, revealed to me that I was complaining. To which I very wisely, with wisdom and and, and spiritual guidance said no I'm not (laughs) to which she has told me I think you need to go to your dictionary and look up the word complain and then come back and we'll talk she was right I was wrong do all things without grumbling or complaining without disputing I mean If we can measure our life against that, if we can say, yes, that's what's going on. Even when things aren't going my way, I don't fuss, I don't whine, I I, I don't complain or grumble. I know that God's in control. I know that he's in charge. I keep it together. If we can come to that place, then hallelujah, we're being led by Jesus. And we're exercising our right to live our lives as sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. But if we find that we're not, if we find that we're prone to complaint, grumbling, things don't go our way and it really tees us off something fierce, then we're being led by something else. Our call is to be led by Jesus. The only reason why we wouldn't let Jesus lead is we don't put our trust in Him. We're putting our trust in other means, whether it's ourselves or worldly things. And ourselves and the things of this world are destined to fail. Another one of these spiritual paternity tests can be found in 1 John chapter 3. In verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. I mean, you have to just pause for a second and consider the romantic and powerful language being used here. It's, it's one who sat with Jesus, who listened to His sermons, who, who watched the miracles who wrote out the gospel, who saw the risen king. And he's sitting marveling and trying to communicate with his pen how his brain can hardly capture words to describe how amazing it is that God has bestowed such incredible love upon us. Behold the manner of the love of the Father that he's bestowed upon us that we should be called sons of God. Wow. And then there's a therefore in there. And every time you see a therefore, you should find out what it's there for. Therefore, the world knows us not. Because it knew Him not. So here's this spiritual paternity test here. Does the world know me? Do I look like the world? 
Do I look just like the world Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, but for an hour and a half on Sunday morning, I try to look like the church, and then I'm back to looking like the world. Does the world know me? Or am I a stranger to the world? A weirdo? Peculiar? Why don't you talk like us? Why don't you do the things we do? Why don't you watch the things we watch? You don't fit in. You should try to fit in more. Especially if you want to be cool. So this test, am I exercising my right to be a son of God? Am I following Jesus or am I being led by something else? The question I ask myself is, do I look like the world? Or do I look like the kingdom of God? Galatians 3.26 tells us this, that you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting in Jesus brings us to a place where we can walk in our right as the sons, the daughters, the children of God. Trusting in Jesus, trusting in Him to lead the way, trusting in Him to provide the direction when we're faced with choices and decisions. Jesus told us, I'm going to be with the Father, and you would cheer if you understood what that meant. Because rather than be one man in one place, I'm going to him to pour out the Holy Ghost so I can be everywhere all the time with every single one of you. I am his solution. I am the voice that's behind you telling you which way to go when you're faced with choice and decision. No longer will you have to write a letter. No longer will you have to travel afar. But I'll be with you to tell you what to do. God's solution to our problem that we could make good choices and decisions. I told you that we would find the perfect New Year's resolution. Obviously, that's an opinion. But I think it's capable of making a pretty strong run. You can take it down for your notes as we close Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. It reads like this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. But in all of your ways, acknowledge Him. And then here comes the promise. And He will make your paths straight. God's solution to our problem. In everything we do, we're at a crossroads. Every person we encounter, every trial that we walk through, even every victory that we celebrate, every one of those things are a crossroads where we can turn to the right, turn to the left. We can make the right choice. We can make the wrong choice. And God's given us a security and a stability to always choose what's right if we can simply be led. I want to ask you to stand to your feet this morning. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.